Well, am I allowed to have a favourite? Because if I am, I think this episode may just be my favourite. Welcome back. I'm Gila Ross, host of the Power Up podcast, where we share short, relatable ideas to upgrade and impact our everyday lives. Welcome. We're really, really excited to have Rohi Koval on the Power Up podcast with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Rohi. I really appreciate you giving us your time. Thank you. Rohi, Thank you for having me. Pleasure is all ours. Um, tell, Rohi, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, let's see. I was born in New York. I moved to Cleveland when I was seven years old. And so I grew up here. I ended up marrying basically the boy next door. And just like when we moved to Cleveland, his family lived right back to back to us through the backyard in the next house. So um, when we got married, we, um, and I went to Jewish day school my whole life. Um, We moved to Israel when we got married. Not exactly sure what we wanted to do with our lives, but we had both fallen in love with Israel when we were there on our gap year and he was there studying for several years. And so we didn't really know who we wanted to be when we grew up, but we knew that we wanted to start out in Israel. And then while we were living there, my husband decided that he wanted to become a rabbi, which was not something that had ever come up before. (laughs) But but we were very young when we got married, so we knew that we were going to kind of grow up, you know, together. And so how how young were you? I was two months past my 19th birthday when we got married and my husband was 22. Wow. So really young. Yes. So very, very young. Um, And so we moved after five years of living in Israel, he, he finished rabbinical school and we moved to a place called Buffalo Grove, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And uh, we lived there for two years and he was the community rabbi out there. And after that, we moved back to Cleveland, which was our hometown. And we've been here ever since. So that was in 2000. Um, And after a few years of being back in Cleveland, we decided to start our own congregation. And um, that's what we've been doing. And the concept of our congregation is similar to what some people might be familiar with in terms of Chabad or Aish, where, um, you know, My husband and I are, quote, orthodox, but our members are sort of all over the map, Um, you know, non-denominational, post-denominational, trans-denominational, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But one thing we all have in common is we're all trying to grow. We're all trying to learn. We're all trying to become better. And uh, I write, I speak, I uh, teach, and that's what I love to do. Yes, and and I'm a huge fan of your your writing, your Thank you. and your your social media posts. It's it's always uh, interesting because listening to you, I, like it sounds like you had like almost like the cookie cutter um, 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 growing up, right? But when you read your posts and and your blogs or whatever, you're very very relatable and you're able to to you know relate very to to people in in a very real way. Was there anything, is that something you've always been able to do? Was there anything that sort of like happened for you that sort of made that? Um, thank you, first of all. I actually never really thought about that, but 
I mean, even as a kid, I do feel like I was, I was kind of born and like, I don't take any credit for this, but with the ability to understand other people, like to connect to other people and sort of to, to read between the lines with other people and, and to know how to validate other people where they are, even if they're different from me. Um, but I do think that living in Buffalo Grove, Illinois was very instrumental because I had kind of been living in a bubble my whole life. Like I, like I said, I, I, I lived in my little close knit Jewish community. I went to day school all the way through 12th grade. And then we were in Israel. So we were in this very like Jewish religious bubble. And then when we moved to Buffalo Grove, it was the first time that we were a minority. Like there were very few Orthodox families in Buffalo Grove. In fact, I can count them on one hand. So I was like out in like, you know, kind of Jewish secular suburbia and really understanding people who had grown up different from me in the, for the first time in my life, not from them coming into my environment, but from me going into their environment. And I think that really broadened my horizons. Um, but in terms of the realness, that's actually something that I have had to mindfully cultivate because who I really am, for those of you who are Enneagram people, I'm a, I'm a four. I think it's a four, um, which means that by default, I'm pretty image conscious. And I've always been mindful of the image that I that I put forth and kind of making things look great and everything's perfect. And, I, you know, I didn't grow up in an era of social media that only came about much later. In fact, I remember the very first time I posted on Facebook when we lived in Buffalo Grove. Um, but, oh, you know, and, and things did really go very well for me for a long time. I, I did have a cookie cutter life. I married the first guy I dated. I got into the first school I applied to. I I got to live in Israel, which was my dream. I, I the healthy, gorgeous kids came right away. Like I I really did, you know, not that I didn't have the normal ups and downs, but I really did have a pretty cookie cutter life. And then, you know, I'm not shy about the fact that about seven years ago things began to get really difficult here in my family with different challenges and issues and you know, for the first time I felt like I was living a double life, like putting out this like, oh, I'm great, everything's fine image, but in my heart it wasn't true at all. And I, I felt like I was crumbling on the inside. And after about two years of that, I made a conscious decision to be vulnerable and to break that facade of perfection. And um, that's kind of where I've been ever since. And um, at first I thought it would sort of be like, Oh, but then people will like if, if you're in this, you know, public image and, and you show people that that your life is kind of crumbling, then everything will fall apart. But I have found the opposite to be true because every single person in the world has stuff. Some is serious and some is not, right. but everybody has their garbage. And it's actually, in a way, the great equalizer among all humans. So that's like we're we're all connected through shared struggle if we allow ourselves to be it's yep it's true and maybe that that is what um connects you to so many people is the fact that you have that that strength to be able to show your vulnerability i want to ask you because you're, you're talking about timelines and um you brought out a book called conversations with god which is an yeah. ex excellent book on well, telling everyone, why don't you tell us what the book is about? Okay, thank you. So yeah, so in 2016, I came out with a book called Conversations with God. And it was a book that had sort of been requested by some of the people that I study with who were starting to, you know, dabble into prayer. Like these were Jews who had grown up, you know, 
secular or sort of loosely affiliated, but had never really gotten into prayer in any serious way. Um, so prayer was something you kind of had to do on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, you show up at the synagogue, you say what's in the book, you close the book, you go home. And I, I felt that there was something missing, even though there are some incredible English translations, most noteworthy being Arts Girl, um, I felt like there wasn't anything really written in the contemporary vernacular of the um, you know, educated, broad-minded, contemporary Jew. And so I decided one of the things that I'm very grateful for is that God has given me a power with words. It's something that I've been into since I'm a very young child. I started to read and, you know, very young and I love, love, love words. So I decided to, it started with just like candlelighting. And then I tried it with Berkat HaMazon, the, the Grace After Meals, just writing a contemporary modern language uh, expression of what the what the traditional ancient prayers were trying to say and it was very well received and eventually I wrote more prayers and then I turned it into a booklet then eventually I turned it into a book so I'm very excited about that and it's been really well really well received we're in our fifth printing right now it, it is an excellent excellent book I've, I've ordered it and I've also gifted it to other people as well quite quite a few times um, I can't help but notice that that came about at the same time that you were going through the cha the challenges. Was that because of, in spite of? Because uh, yes, that is the dirty little secret. So <laughs> I started writing the book before, um, before the tectonic shifts of my life, and then what happened was, at the, the the writing of the book took two years. And so during that process, I, I went through this sort of crisis of faith where I was like, you know, because when a person is going through a crisis, they often don't feel like talking to God. I mean, some people turn more to God in a crisis and, and in a way that's true, but when things are truly, truly bad, I feel like many people feel like I, I can't, even people who are very used to prayer, I can't even talk to God. Like, I don't even know what to say. I feel abandoned. I feel alone. I feel punished and it becomes very difficult to talk to God. And that's what I was going through as I was writing the book. And I really had to make some tough decisions about what was I going to do about this? Again, there was that dual life going on where on the outside, I'm this inspirational Rebetzin writing a book about prayer. And on the inside, I can't even bring myself to have a conversation with God because I have so many feelings that are so big and so powerful. And I didn't even... I didn't even know where to put them, but I made a decision that faith is something that you have to fight for. And it's not, it's not something that like you just do this like temperature check, like, do I believe or don't I believe? Okay. Results in 57%. Faith is a goal and it's a character tree and it's something that you have to work on and it's something that you have to fight for. And I made a decision then that for the first time in my life, I was going to have to fight for my faith. It wasn't something that was just going to be handed to me on a silver platter. And the mechanism by which I fought for it, several ways, but one way was to continue to go through the motions, even though I wasn't feeling it. And that meant getting up every morning and saying my prayers, even though I didn't feel the words that I was saying. And continuing to write the book because intellectually I believed in what I was doing, even though my heart wasn't there. And I, I, I came to realize, or at least to hope, that it would come back one day. 
Um, if, you know, at the same time, I was really like listening to a lot of lectures and podcasts and things that would re-inspire me and my faith, surrounding myself with people who are strong in that area to re to re-strengthen me, um, trying to look for God's hand in my life, trying to look for the glimmers in the darkness and, and, um, and it, it did, it did happen. It, it took a long time, but it did happen. And, um, the writing of the book was. I wrote it despite where I was at personally, you know, and I'm very grateful I did. Wow. Firstly, thank you for sharing that. Cause I think that is, um, it's, um, it's very, it's very raw and honest. And it's, um, I think it's very, very powerful because honestly, I think a lot of us think of faith as, as, as you say, you know, do I believe or don't I believe, or what do I believe in? But when you say that faith is something that you have to fight for, I don't know if I've ever heard that phrase before, but it rings so true, right? Like it's like any relationship, right? You know, if, if you think about any relationship that we have, whether it's with a spouse, whether it's with our kids, it's not just, do I love them or not? Do I like them or not? It's like, how, how much do I have to fight for that relationship? How much do I have to invest for that relationship? And, and I love the way you, 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 you relate that back. I'm sure it must've taken a, a lot of, I don't know how you did that at the time, right? To sort of say, you know what, like this is going on and, and I, I can feel angry with God or I can feel abandoned by God or whatever, whatever it is, those feelings that we have, but it's still something that I, I want to, I want to fight for. Are, are there any sort of tips, ideas that you would give to our listeners for, for how to sort of take that mindset and apply it to our lives, whether it's the small things or, or the big things? So, you know, it's interesting. I think that in general, we're very ill-equipped to fight for our relationships. I think that, that the trend where we are now is to just say, I, I can't do this. This is too hard. You know, more than ever, young adults are estranging themselves from their parents. This is this is a trend. You see it more and more. Um, you know, more often than not, couples are losing steam to fight for their relationships with each other. And and I think that what one thing I've learned over time is that our relationship with God is not terribly dissimilar from our relationships with people. And I think that's what I didn't understand kind of growing up in the bubble. Like, well, my relationship with God, that's perfect. And you never get into a fight with God. Um, you know, that's just something that you have. And, and if you don't have it, you're bad. And, you know, but relationships with people... Are totally different but my more mature understanding of this is that perhaps god gave us relationships with people as paradigms for how to relate to him and like you know in much the same way that you know if i get into a fight with my husband well if there's enough good in that relationship i'm gonna fight for it i'm gonna fight hard and I'm going to say, well, I'm going to act as though, even when I'm going to fight with my husband, I'm still going to cook him dinner and I'm still going to kiss him goodnight. And I'm, you know, because that's what it means to fight for a relationship. So I think that in terms of how can we bring this into our lives, it sort of goes both ways. We can use our relationships with people to teach us how to, how to be in a relationship with God, but perhaps we can also learn from our relationship with God to teach us how to be in a relationship with people. You know, and, and and depending on where a person's frame of reference is and in which arena do they feel more comfortable. Um, but I think in general, we should be fighting for our relationships and, and not giving up on them and, and continuing to go through the motions even when we don't feel like it. You know, 
I, I, I've seen myself. Sometimes you're just tempted to give up, you know, and some relationships do need to end. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but I think most relationships are still worth fighting for. And, and it's hard. It's hard, hard, hard work. We don't want to do what's hard. We want to, we want to, you know, we're tired. It's, it's a weary journey, this, this business called life, but that's what we're here to do. We're here to work and we're here to grow and we're here to become. We're not here to rest. I mean, everyone needs yeah. to rest sometimes, but that's the pause between the work. That's not the work. Exactly. And and yes, it, it's true. It's, it's um, I really, I really like what you're saying, you know, about the, the mindset that number one, it's worth fighting for. Number two, to just keep going through the motions, even though you're not yet feeling it. I want, I want to touch on something that you said earlier as well, especially because it's very timely. We're coming up to the high holidays. And for a lot of a lot of us, um, you know, there's a lot of prayer right now, depending what your relationship with prayer is and depending what your knowledge with prayer is, um, you know, it, it could be very, very difficult to connect to that. Um, would you have any tips, any thoughts and, and anything to share with with our listeners about how to connect with the high holidays, how to connect with with prayer on, on the high holidays? Yeah. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. So um, I will acknowledge the fact that without the right preparation, the high holidays can be very laborious and burdensome, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of Jewish guilt. So people show up at the synagogue anyway, because they think that that's what they're supposed to do. And they've checked their, you know, good boy, good girl, Jewish box, and they can move on. And, and I'm not saying that that's terribly, you know, that that's terrible because, you know, the Talmud says that you should do things for the wrong reasons because you'll come to do them for the right reasons. So show up, you know, anyway. And in fact, you know, the book Ethics of the Fathers, um, which is an ethical guide, tells us there are four people who show up to the house of study. And this, this applies to the house of prayer as well. Um, the first person shows up and doesn't do anything there. They get credit for coming. The other person does their prayer or study at home but doesn't come, well, that person gets the credit for doing it. Then you have the person who shows up and does what they're supposed to do, great. Then you have the person who doesn't show up and doesn't do what they're supposed to do, not great. So the idea here, which I love, is that God gives partial credit, right? God doesn't say, you didn't come to synagogue on high holidays, you bad Jew, you know, you're gonna have a bad year. God says, well, no, I'm gonna give you credit for what you did. And like, I think that while I'm a big fan of people coming to shul and, you know, to synagogue, and I know that this year is hard with COVID and a lot of synagogues aren't, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging again, but like, I think that this, this is something that our rabbi has told us over and over again. It's always going to be quality over quantity. And the point of the quality, the point that this is why I called my book conversations with God. Are you actually having a conversation with God? You could stand in the synagogue for five hours and turn to all the right pages and stand up when you're supposed to and sit down when you're supposed to and beat your chest and bow. And you have not had one conversation with God because it's so boring and you're so not connected and your mind is on a thousand other things. I'm again, not gonna say that's worthless. You get credit for showing up, but that is not called having a conversation with God. So I would say, if you want a shortcut guide to the high holidays, do whatever you need to do to have an actual conversation with God. And thank you. Um, are there any myths about either prayer or faith that you'd like to dispel for us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I will never forget. I was once in a meeting. I had a meeting with a woman who's a part of my community, a part of the Jewish community here. And she tells me, 
She says, you know, Ruchi, I'm a bad Jew. I said, why are you a bad Jew? She goes, because, um, she goes, I don't belong to a synagogue. I don't donate to Federation. And I forgot the third thing she said. She goes, but you know, I'm the only member of my family who believes in God. So I was thinking to myself how in many ways, being a good Jew has become very externalized. And this is true across denominationally that we're like, I look like this. I dress like this. I affiliate like that. I pay my dues here. Um, I'm checking in where I'm supposed to check in, but, and again, you'll get credit for doing all of those things. But the more important question is what is your, what is your internal experience with Judaism? You know, and I'm not saying that, that you should have only an internal, you know, experience with Judaism. It is important to affiliate. You know, it is important to be a part of a community. It is important to give tzedakah, um, but we should not, we should not value those things above having an internal experience. And and I think that you know part of the myth is that you know a person will say, oh, I'm a bad Jew because I don't do X, Y, and Z. Well, that that's a myth. That doesn't make you a bad Jew. You know, uh, if if you are trying to connect and trying to be involved and trying to have an ex internal experience with Judaism. You know, trying to figure out how Judaism changes your life. How can you grow and become a better person? How can you leave this world a better place? You know, trying to connect with God on a daily basis, trying to do acts of kindness, trying to enhance your observances in whatever way, then you're a good Jew. So we shouldn't get distracted by the external experience of Judaism at the cost of the internal experience of Judaism. Right. And I think it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning when you were talking about faith. I think the two things that you were saying that number one, it's worth fighting for and number two, to keep going through the motions regardless, right? So I think you could probably, I'm gonna suggest something here, extend that to Judaism, right? Like we could say that Judaism is worth fighting for, right? Our relationship with Judaism is worth fighting for. And yeah. you know, sometimes we feel more connected, sometimes we feel less, and we have to keep on working and keep on fighting for that internal connection at the same time as going through the motions as well when when we when we when when we're feeling it less in, um, internally would you yeah that's very true that's very true and 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 on that level going back to where we started the external experience has its place and its value right right it just shouldn't be confused with everything yeah because it has its place because it, it, as, you, as you say, when you go back to a relationship, right? If the minute we have an argument or a fight, we cut off all the actions. That's, that's right. Terrible, right? You need right. those actions to keep the relationship going while you sort out the internal. Yeah. I'm going to give you like a somewhat unpleasant metaphor for what I'm talking about. <laughs> so one of my I'm sons- sure I'm ready for this. <laughs> go. One of my sons used to play basketball and he, when he was a teenager, he had braces. And he was playing basketball and he was hit in the face with a basketball and the basketball knocked out his front tooth. Now, because he was wearing braces, the braces kept his tooth in place. And eventually the tooth reconnected and regrew. So I'm sorry for that kind of disgusting visual, but the point is that the, ex <laughs> the external framework allows yes. the internal framework to regrow. Right. You know, even though at the beginning it just looked like it was connected when it really wasn't, 
but eventually the outside enabled the inside to happen. And, and I think that that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. That, that's actually a very, very powerful analogy. Thank, thank you for sharing that. And I'm, <laughs> he, he, he's tooth recovered. Um, thank you so much. This has really, really been so insightful, so powerful. Thank you, Hila. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I'd love to hear which part of this episode resonated with you. You can get in touch with me. You can find me on Instagram at Gilaros. And please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.